Hello and welcome to the latest episode of the CityWire Selector podcast. I'm Jessica Bid, international reporter. Now this time around we'll be hearing from our guest Volker Hergert, who's a portfolio manager for multi-asset class at LGT Group. Today's episode, Volker talks about the role of a fund selector in distinguishing a manager's skill from luck when it comes to performance. It's for this reason he says it's also important to look at how managers handle periods of outperformance and underperformance in particular. Someone who has been successful all the time is dangerous, he tells me. He also tells us he doesn't like an overconfident manager and talks about why he's cynical when it comes to investment according to regional lines. We'll be hearing from Volker shortly, but first it's time for a quick rundown on what's going on in markets. I've got Dr. Nisha Long, who's Head of Cross-Border Investment Research at CityWire, here with me today. Hi, Nisha. Hi. So the past couple of months have been quite volatile for markets, particularly since October. What are some of the biggest movements you've been seeing? Yes, so it's been a tough few months for investments, uh, with loads of geopolitical news dominating the markets. Now, just looking back at October, where equities fell sharply as trade war tensions between China and the US and rising rates really impacted global markets. Now, this, along with inflation concerns and oil price falls due to overproduction, have spooked the markets. Now, we also have a ripple effect of news coming out of the US affecting the rest of the world with the US bonds and equities sell off. Now, in October alone, investors fled from bonds and equities, which saw in excess of 30 billion euros in net outflows over the course of the month. So where were the biggest outflows? So in bonds, the focus was on long-term US dollar bonds, which saw 9.4 billion dollars of withdrawals, while people turned their attention to short-term debt. Now, the US dollar part of the short-term debt market added 1 billion euros of net new money over the month, which is understandable as short-term bonds is probably the best place to be as they're high yielding and can help hedge bond portfolios from the impact of rising rates. But if we look at November, it's US corporate debt that investors are shunning. Now, this is due to nervousness about companies' global debt piles in an environment of rising US interest rates and falling oil prices. Okay, and so from this, who were the winners? Now, if you go back to October again, it was the defensive equities, such as Japanese stock funds and gold and precious metal vehicles, which saw the most new money added. And this seems to be continuing this month. And I have to mention, investors withdrew strongly from US equities, which saw 9.5 billion euros exit. And from what we've been seeing from previous months, this was a reversal. Until a couple of months ago, we saw strong inflows into US equity active funds, when everything with earnings outlooks, et cetera, looked hunky-dory. Okay, and so picking up on US equities there, what does it mean for the market? So news out of the US, it hasn't been great for global market sentiment. Now the bears are now fully in control of the markets. And what I mean by this is that the recent sell-off in US equities, which has been driven by falling oil prices and rising interest rates, investors are becoming more bearish and defensive. And to be honest, who can blame them? Now, some of the biggest stocks which we've seen have seen massive continued growth stories have been the hardest hit stocks, which are the famed FANGs stocks. So your Facebook, Apple, Amazon, Netflix and Google. So this has really rattled investors' nerves. And so what does that mean for the wider tech markets? Now, I think this could be a wake-up call, especially for the US tech markets, which is already in play. So 
To put this in context, the tech-heavy Nasdaq Composite Index was down by 9.2% in October. And for the period of the 1st of um, November to the 21st, the index has lost a further 5.3% in US dollar terms. Now that's a big fall and a big concern as the Nasdaq hasn't seen these levels of monthly losses since the financial crisis. And this quarter it's heading towards the worst losses since that time. Now, tech stocks are currently a very volatile area to trade in. They're really struggling for growth power due to diminishing innovation and new products, which is a concern. And it's been said again and again that valuations are overstretched in these stocks. But this recent sell-off can be the start of realistic valuations for these companies. Now, just to put this into context, now over the past three months to the 21st of November, Facebook has lost 10.7% of its share price. Apple is down by 19.6% and Amazon is down 14.9%. So you can see some really heavy falls there. So tech stocks, they're not overboiling anymore with valuations, but they're just now at simmering point. And this may help normalize the tech market with reasonable valuations. So, so quite a rocky couple of months there at the end of the year. Um, it'll be interesting to see how that all plays out next year and if things calm down. And now it's time to hear from our guest, Volker Hergert, who is Portfolio Manager at LGT. So, uh, regulation, like it or not, is something that we all face. You really can't get away from it. And it's a, a growing and really constant pressure. But who's, who would you say is losing out the most from regulation? Well, I think first of all, I think we all gain from it to a certain degree, right? Because it helps to, to increase ethical standards in the industry and give more transparency. So that's a good thing, specifically after the experience of the great financial crisis. Um, but uh, it's a problem for, for small um, boutique managers, obviously, because uh, they don't have the, the capacities to cope with all the regulations. It also eats. Uh, as fixed costs into their to their margins, um, so they struggle with it. To be honest, and what we have seen is that some of the uh, the smallest boutique managers have surrendered. Others um, hesitate to to launch a, a new firm, right? And if they do so, then they often partner with bigger firms who take over all the back office and little office functions and so on, so that the small boutique manager can uh, focus on investment management alone, but then they have to share fees with the partner at times when fees go down more and more. That's a bit of a problem, obviously. Yeah, and how long have they been struggling with this, as you say? Do you think it's over the past five years or just even more so this year since more regulation came in? I think uh, that has been the case since the GFC, so we talk about close to 10 years now. Uh, but MIFID too, obviously, was, was another hit. And are we actually seeing repercussions? So when you're um, in your fund selection, when you're looking for these boutique managers, are you finding less and less over time? Uh, no, not really. It's that less and less new ones come on the market. So if old ones go out of the market, then this would become an issue, uh, something we haven't seen yet. So uh, I'd say the, the list of prospect managers that we have has remained pretty much the same over the years. Um, and in a way, uh, what we see with regulation is that it protects those who are already in the business as the barriers of entry, obviously, are now set higher. Uh, harder. Are we seeing, um, do you think we're moving towards a polarization of the smallest and really the largest groups? Oh, yeah. 
Definitely. I mean, this has been the case in so many industries. Once they got saturated or mature, that you, you find a barbelling of the industry. So you have um, the, the, the discount offering on the one hand and the luxury offering on the other. And I think it's the same in the financial industry with the discount offering being represented by passive investment ETFs and the, uh, the luxury offering being represented by, by active managers. And so these active managers, do you think they need more protection or have they got enough from the existing regulation? Um, I, I think they got more than enough protection right now because um, I think the big players have been in the market for such a long time. For them, it's not a big problem. And for the small ones uh, who would come in, as I said, I've made the observation that many of them hesitate to do so. Yeah. So um, this kind of you know, higher barriers of entry is already in place. Yeah, is it making your job harder as a fund selector? Um, well, I think, or I could imagine that it will make it harder in the future. So far, I haven't felt anything significant. As I said, I mean, we, we've been in the market for a long time. We've been doing this now for 20 years. I've been doing it now for close to 10 years. And um, of course, the, the list of prospect managers has evolved over time. But once I've been through the individual markets you know, and, and met all the guys I wanted to meet, it has remained pretty much stable. Okay. Okay, and do you, when you're looking for active managers, do you really focus on these small niche kind of expertise-based boutiques? Or do you also look at the big kind of supermarket funds? Well, we, we, we tend to look at the small boutiques, that is true, um, for a simple reason, which is that we feel they are best aligned in interest with ourselves, which is about being performance-driven, uh, putting the, the money where, the where their mouth is, um, many of them have equity stakes in their firms, something which, for instance, is impossible if you work for one of the big household names. Um, so with big household names, I think you, you meet the, the agent problem what, that we in general face in the industry, right? That those who run the business are not the owners of the business. So where, where are their incentives, right? And mm -hmm. we've seen many misled incentives in the past. So that doesn't happen with boutique managers. And uh, I think all our guys who work on operational due diligence, they confirm this point of view, that they see true alignment with these managers. And uh, there's also academic research being executed on that, showing that the smaller boutique managers on average perform better than the larger ones, who, I, mean, I don't want to generalize, but some of them have become asset gatherers. Yeah. Uh, they are the ones, when we talk about the rise of ETFs, uh, have been found guilty of being more or less index huggers, mm. um, asking active fees for de facto passive returns. Um, that's something we don't find so so much with boutique managers. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So we've you mentioned what you look for in a manager. What what is something that you really don't like in a fund manager that would make you not want to invest so much? Oh, the no-goes. Yeah, um. <laughs> the big kind of alarm bells that go off in a meeting with a fund manager. Um, well, I don't like uh, people who are too self-confident of themselves. Uh, being humble, I think, is a prerequisite for being successful in this industry over a longer period Why of time. Why do you think that? Uh, well, I come from the behavioral finance side of uh, 
uh, investment and of a strong conviction, I have one at least, which is that having too strong convictions is bad, right? I mean, we've seen that so often that uh, managers get overconfident once they have had some success. Uh, and one thing, for instance, I always look at is that managers also had a period of uh, bad performance and just see how did they handle that? What was their takeaway? Are there lessons learned? Someone has been successful all the time. That's that's dangerous. Mm, I suppose you need do you need honesty from them about yes. You know, this obviously you're not going to outperform in every no, market condition. No, I think every manager, every investor has to be patient. Uh, even the best managers underperform for for a while. Uh, what we see all the time is that on average, investors get out of strategies at the wrong point in time. They get whipsawed, right? One, two, or three years of underperformance, and you're out, and then uh, performance mean reverts again, and you miss the recovery. So um, I, I think it's more important to look at uh, whether the manager can be blamed for underperformance or not. Uh, mm -hmm. We have had the cases where manager has a very clear style, it's very transparent, and you know the investment cases, the individual ones, and you see these are mostly fundamental bottom-up stock pickers that the companies have delivered fundamentally what the manager imagined, what the market maybe has thought, but if the market concentrates on other themes, on other parts of the market, and therefore these stocks underperform despite fundamental delivery, I mean the manager can't be blamed. And that's a strong indication for that this situation of underperformance won't be lasting. No, but then how long do you stick with a manager that is outperforming? Surely there reaches a time when you think it, it goes beyond beyond that. It's, it, it does become the manager's fault. Uh, it becomes the manager's fault if you see that his investment cases have been wrong. Yeah. So he was wrong for the wrong reasons, <laughs> right? Yeah. Uh, the opposite is also true. I mean, we try to, to select managers who were right for the right reasons. Because I bet you come across quite a lot of luck as well, managers that are maybe just lucky in the way that they've been investing. That's always the, the crucial question, yeah. right? I mean, uh, performance is performance at face value, but what is behind it, right? And uh, Sometimes I take the example of uh, how America was discovered by Europe. Should I tell that now? <laughs> but yeah, I mean, it, there was uh, Eric the Red from the Vikings, right? Uh, who was the first one to, to go to Greenland and Newfoundland. Uh, oh, great hero in the history, right? But I mean, he was a lucky guy because he was a villain. They were after him, he was prosecuted. Uh, he escaped with his guys, right? And he went west because he was desperate. And then he found Greenland and he thought, oh, that's a good idea. I now I can return, I have, I have some asset <laughs> in, my, in my bag, right? So he returned, made big marketing. Today you would say alternative facts, presenting Greenland as a green land, yeah. which in fact it is not. <laughs> it was not <laughs> even then, right? And Newfoundland, which is sold as the wine land. Yeah. That's why they called it Wienland. And from Wienland, Newfoundland is deducted, which was also n just not true. Yeah. So he was lucky. And Christopher Columbus, I mean, you know, he was desperate as well. He tried to, to sail west. Uh, he didn't get anyone who could finance him. He was with the Portuguese, with the Genoese. You know. uh, nobody trusted him. Then he went to the Spanish court. Isabel and Ferdinand, and they just um, uh, had a victory against the, um, the Arabs in Granada, 1492. So Reconquista was finished, yeah, we were back Christianized, but 
finances were completely uh, bankrupt. They desperately needed something like gold or so. And that's why they, they really financed him. And he also presented alternative facts because he presented uh, a globe which was much too small. So he said, okay, I can go to India because the, uh, the diameter of the, the Earth is like this, and this was much smaller than it is really. Oh, and that yeah. was already known. So for instance, the Portuguese knew that. And so with, with, let's say, false promises, he made them finance that. And he would have never come back if there was not America in between, right? <laughs> so again, a lucky, guy, a lucky desperate guy. So they, yeah. these guys had their performance, but it was luck, right? And it's the same with us uh, selecting managers. Yeah. How much do you think you see these false promises? At the moment, we're hearing a lot about um, the difference between active and, and the really truly active. You know, we already talked about the kind of closet trackers and that sort of thing. How much deception do you think there is at the moment? Perception, yeah, that, that's a good question. I mean, I can tell you what I perceive as being truly active, which is that, that uh, managers have a truly absolute return mindset. So they don't look at the index and the index composition at all. And um, then the active share you see or the tracking area you see is just a derivative of that mm -hmm. general stance. And um, I mean, I combine different strategies to build optimal portfolios on a risk-adjusted base. That's why the individual mandates have to be very active. And very active in my case means, for instance, in Europe or US, we talk about tracking errors above 5 6% or active share above 90%. Because if I combine, let's say, three strategies of five, 6% tracking error, then the combined strategy has maybe three to four, right? Um, Is it getting harder to find those really active managers, though? Um, no, I think it has always been hard. Okay. <laughs> because as per definition, around 50% uh, of managers outperform, 50 managers underperform. Um, and if you look at longer periods of time and you want someone who has outperformed all the time, of course it becomes less and less the yeah, longer yeah. the period as you look at. Um, uh, so you, you, can't, you can't go with just that face value of performance. That's why yeah. you know, going through a running list of CityWire or anybody else yeah, who just says, okay, these are the, the strategies available um, ranked by five-year performance or so, that doesn't do the job because you have to understand where the performance came from. Of course. And to which degree what, what they have achieved is repeatable in the future. And that is why you really have to go each individual investment case, understand, okay, why did the manager invest at a specific point in time? Was he right for the right reasons or for the wrong reasons? How did he react to adverse developments? You know, things like that. It's, it's a long list mm. that, 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 that you check. Uh, it's a lot of work. It takes a lot of time. Um, but then after a while, um, and sometimes we look at for years uh, analyzing strategies before we are really convinced uh, that, that, they, that they can produce repeatable returns. Um, so this is, this is very tough and has always been tough. Yeah. I, I don't see a change now through recent developments like regulation or so. It's no. just that if boutique managers somehow leave the market, they won't be replaced at the same pace that we had seen in the past. Yeah. Which is a problem though, isn't it, with the it industry? It, it could become a problem yeah. over in the long run. We'll see. Yeah. Yeah. But, uh, but, I'm, uh, but I'm not sure that the developments we have seen uh, for the last 10 years will, will continue at the same space, which means 
for instance, passive investment taking away money from active investors. Maybe you don't also think it's all continue to gain market share, passive investment? No, no, there, there's a point of saturation at any given point in time. Because we've reached, is it 50-50 in the US? And it's not quite at that stage in Europe. No. So isn't there, just, isn't there further to go still in Europe? I think it's, it's a function of uh, what the market overall does, what kind of market regime we have. I think the market regime of the last close to 10 years has been very favorable for passive investment just because uh, interest rates have gone down more and more. We are in a zero interest rate environment or have been there for a long time now. Um, so for the normal private investor, for instance, there's always the question, what would be the alternative to invest in equities, right? On the bond side, you don't get interest rate anymore. Um, I mean, which is part of the reason why we had such a prolonged uh, bull market in equities, plus the fiscal stimulus now in the US through the tax cuts. But um, it's a low interest rate environment that drives people into equities. And many people have no idea of how to select the right strategy, right? Making a choice for a specific manager. Uh, for them, it's easiest to go into an ETF, specifically if the offering is for free or nearly for free, right? Um, but what does that mean in a time when the interest rate cycle normalizes? So back to normal interest rates. Mm -hmm. I mean, then there is an alternative in terms of other asset classes, again, which we had in the past as well. Um, what does that mean, for instance, for the equity market performance overall, normalized interest rates? I think there would be a big problem for the market, right? For, yeah. for many reasons. Uh, and um, one negative aspect, I think, for passive investment is that it is momentum investing. You automatically invest in those names that had a good momentum in the past. That's why these names but it's are the highest index weights. As well. It's self-feeding, it continues. It's self-feeding, absolutely. I mean, it's, it's a self-reinforcing process, yeah. right? Because you invest in those names that had the best performance historically. And um, the only um, criterion you look for is just market cap, which I think doesn't make really sense. Uh, history tells us that, I mean, the top 10 list of, of stocks in terms of market cap at a given point in time, when you look again 10 years later, I mean, hardly any of one of them is still in the top 10, right? And you can do this for many, many decades. They've always changed. So coming to the top is difficult, like in tennis or so, right? <laughs> to be number yeah. one, but staying there is even more difficult. So that's also true for those companies. And just investing according to these lines is not very sensible, I think. Do you invest passively? Um, no and yes. No in general, because we are really convinced of active investment. Um, yes, just for liquidity management. Mm -hmm. So we always have small positions in ETFs just to have full exposure to the market, but to be fully liquid. Um, because we have daily in and outflows, small ones, but I don't want to bother our external managers with those flows. So we use um, passive investment as a cash surrogate and a, a buffer, a liquidity yeah. buffer, yeah. but that's all. Besides that, I mean, we have done a lot of research on different asset classes, different regions about truly active managers and their long-term performance. Uh, and the result is that if you're able to pick a second quintile manager for the last three, five, ten years, would have given you an excess return of one and a half to two percent gross. So even after costs, you're much better off than an ETF. 
and the average first quintile manager globally has outperformed by four to five percent across. Mm. I mean, that, that, that's quite a bit, right? And um, that's why I don't buy the point of those who, uh, who love passive investment saying the average active manager underperforms his benchmark after costs. I think that's like a natural law because... Uh, How? Why, why is that a natural law? This is a natural law because if you look at all market participants, right, at an asset-weighted base, you have the full market. And as per definition, half of them has to be above the average and half of them have to be below the average. Now, if you just count the investors, you neglect the size of their investments, right? The size of their strategy. So that can lead to, to some um, disruptions. Um, but on average, this is mean reverting. And on average, we always find that half of managers is better than the average and half of them is, is worse. Yeah. I well mean, yes. that's... That's uh, that's a tautology, and uh, I think uh, as selectors of active managers, our task is just to find those who are in the first two quintiles. Yeah. Where is it hardest? Are there any uh, asset classes or sectors or even regions where it's harder to find truly active managers, bar you know the very well-known U.S. kind of equity market? Uh, I know from my colleagues, I'm just busy on the equity side, but for my colleagues, it's, it's quite difficult uh, on the bond side. Um, there are exceptions though, high yield for instance, or emerging market bonds, that's different, but you know, normal govies, very difficult. Um, on the equity side, um, it depends a bit on how efficient markets are. I think it's in general more difficult in the US, because yeah. this is a very, very efficient market. Um, it's more difficult when you look at pure large cap managers. Um, it's easier if you look at all cap managers or small cap, mid cap managers, because um, the lower the capitalization size of companies, the more neglected they are. Of course. There's yeah. less sell side coverage. And um, there you find the inefficiencies. You find more inefficiencies in emerging markets still. That's why I think also in general, um, those markets where the size factor has worked very well, uh, the average manager has outperformed a large, large cap benchmark to a higher degree. For instance, mm. in Europe, that is the case. That's why you find so many good European managers because they're all all cap managers and they have a, a size effect built in, which automatically leads to outperformance. And um, in emerging markets, that's also the case. Right? Um, so it, it depends on the efficiency of the individual market. Voting this morning um, at the event here in Gstaad, a lot of the fund buyers in the room said that emerging markets is, th is the segment within equities that they're most looking to increase allocation to. Do you think that's part of it? Is it because it's where you, know, you find more opportunities for these really active managers, less well-researched, less efficient markets? Well, I think in general that um, what we do here is not a natural science, it's a social science, <laughs> right? Yeah. And it's all about um, what Keynes said. It's like the beauty contest allegory, right? Saying, okay, imagine you sit in a jury and there are many, many beautiful women um, or men uh, and you have not to, to pick the one that you find is the most beautiful, beautiful, but the one you think the other jury members on average Will pay. Yeah. yeah, so this, this is what we have to do here. So a lot of that is a, a self-reinforcing and self-fulfilling process. 
I mean, if you ask me, for instance, about style investing, growth, value, this kind of stuff, I mean, in the US it works because everybody believes it works and invests according to these lines and looks at it. And it's the but surely it's not only because they believe that it works that it works. Well, but there must the be more behind it. Uh, no, I don't think so. No? No, not Why? really. <laughs> no, because I mean, if, if you think it works and you invest, then you create demand. The offering remains the same. So theory tells you prices go up. Then you feel uh, convinced that you're right and you do more of that. I mean, uh, this is exactly how the ETF business these days works. Because it works and people believe in it and they have the performance and they get the money. So it's a self-reinforcing process. Um, and, and the same is true with, with emerging markets, right? Um, it's, it's, it's a hurting uh, effect. Uh, until the point where it becomes crucial and then it crashes. Now, I'm a bit cynical about uh, allocating assets according to these lines. Yeah. Regional lines, I think it's uh, very, very difficult because if you build clusters for asset allocations, the individual clusters in their own right should be homogeneous. Otherwise, it doesn't make sense. Right? So you take away idiosyncratic risk because you say, okay, all the constituents of that cluster behave in a similar way. So if you take, for instance, a sector like um, telecommunication, okay, you have wireless and you have, you have uh, the fixed line business, but besides that, it's quite homogeneous. Take an industry like industrials, it's so heterogeneous, it doesn't make sense to uh, allocate money to a sector called industrials. <laughs> and uh, the same might be true with regions, right? If you invest in North America, okay, that's homogeneous in its own right. But you invest in emerging markets, what is emerging markets, right? I think it's the one So, do you, I mean, what, what's your take on thematics or, or trend investing then? Is that, is that more homogeneous or not? Well, it, it's something I don't do on my level because we have externalized that to external managers. Okay. But, but we look for managers who are strong on that. Yeah. That is correct. And in general, I think the higher the opportunity set you have, the higher the alpha. So I think the general problem with thematic investing is that you shrink the opportunity set yeah. to a certain theme. Well, if that theme in its own right works, okay. But then you could maybe also do it passively. Who knows? But most of the time, these themes come up and you get the calls from, from relationship managers offering you uh, respective strategies. It's anyway through in the market, right? It's late, late yeah. stage. Yeah. And uh, I've seen so many people who have made really bad experience with thematic investments. So I think it's uh, uh, more appropriate to what find managers. What kind of bad experiences then are people having with thematic investing? Oh, what about alternative energy, green energy, water funds? I mean, there are so many in the past, right? All the technology funds that came out when the Team T-Bubble had already burst. Um, it's difficult. I, I think it's, it's more appropriate to find managers who are open for everything and who have built in the thematic work in their process as well. So I mean, they make the choice for us. Yeah. Okay, well thank you very much. You're welcome. To hear more of the CityWire Selected podcast, tune in again for the latest show, go to citywireselected.com forward slash podcast. Follow us on Twitter at CWSelector to stay up to date with all the latest fund industry news.